Live from Springfield, Ohio, it's Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. I'm Rick James. I am Rick Lee James, and you're listening to Voices in My Head. Listeners, and welcome back to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. I am Rick Lee James, and I am your host on what is going to be an amazing episode today. I know it's amazing because it wasn't just me on the episode, but my friend Matt Cole joined me over Skype, and we're going to play that interview here in a little while. We'll be talking about Superman, patriotism, and the church, three things that go together or don't go together, whichever the case may be. It's a chilly day, but it's warming up a little bit here in Springfield, Ohio. It's a balmy 53 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, uh, I think, 12 degrees Celsius, something like that, here in the year of our Lord, 2001-2, stardate, whatever. But with that, let's go on with the rest of the show, because we've got a lot to cover today. This is going to be the longest of the four episodes so far. This is episode four. Going to let you know just a little bit of feedback right away. Not going to take much time to do that. But feedback has been coming in, and it's been good. We've been getting some good reviews. My wife loves it. Yes, she indeed listened to the podcast over the weekend, and I got a rave review from my wife. So thank you very much to my wife. We'll deal with other reviews later. I want to kind of move on with the show today because we got a lot of ground to cover, starting with this new segment, To the People of the Future. That's right. All podcasts really are to people of the future. Since we are not broadcasting via radio, we are actually recording these episodes and then putting them out where they are heard several days later. And as far as I know, they're going to be out there until kingdom come, all the way into the future. So my message to the people of the future who are listening today, you have it so easy with your lawnmowers that use laser beams instead of blades. In my time, we had real sharp metal spinning blades that could cut your feet clean off. And we were thankful. You don't have to deal with losing a body part to the hateful gods of grass clippings. For you, there's no flying debris to be shot through a window of your house by accident, shattering a window. You've not had to deal with getting woozy from the smelly gas and oil fumes that are emitted from a real lawnmower because everything now runs on oxygen. Well, in our time, we walked around with bloody stumps where our feet used to be, woozy from fumes and blood loss, wondering how we would keep the extreme weather out of our house now that our lawnmowers had projected our amputated feet through the house windows, shattering our glass and our dreams of Olympic glory. People of the future, be thankful for what you have. We were. Well, here on the Voices in My Head podcast, we have a lot of new segments week to week, and this is no exception. I like to be educational with what I talk about and not just blather on endlessly about nothing like I usually do. So today I want to start a segment that's probably going to be a reoccurring part of our show called the Practically Useless Guitar Lesson. Well, it's the Practically Useless Guitar Lesson. This week on our very first installment of the Practically Useless Guitar Lesson, I want to teach you something, children. The first string and the last string on the guitar 
are both called the E-string. That's right. Say it with me, the E-string. Memorize that for next week. You have been listening to the Practically Useless Guitar Lesson. Good luck with that. The Practically Useless Guitar Lesson. Take that useless knowledge and put it to good use. Well, as Jerry Reed taught us, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so we have to be moving right along to our next segment, the Question of the Week. Question of the Week. Well, Question of the Week has been getting more responses than any previous Question of the Week so far, which is a wonderful thing. And uh, these answers are coming from the Voices in My Head Facebook page and from rickleejames.com. Most people said, and the Question of the Week, by the way, was who would win in a fight between Superman and the Mighty Thor? A much more complex question than you may have thought. But the answers varied, uh, but Superman was clearly the winner, according to our listeners. Um, On the Voices in My Head Facebook page, which I encourage you all to go to and become a part of that community there, uh, most people who answered this question said that Superman would beat the mighty Thor. Uh, Ben DeBono of the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast wrote in an answer, which was Batman, while Brian Hawk of Springfield, Ohio, wrote in an answer, which was a cookie. Um, Batman and the cookie tied, which I'm not sure that this can be attributed to anything except a case of acid reflux on the place of uh, the Dark Knight, because I really don't think that a cookie would be much of a challenge. But uh, it's okay to write things in, listeners, and I appreciate you doing that. But the question was between Superman and Thor. We all know Batman's awesome and cookies are delicious, but doesn't really count for the uh, question this week. From rickleejames.com, 75% said Superman would win and 25% said Thor would win. This brings me to a closer look at our heroes this week because sometimes I think the listeners and the poll takers have got it right. Sometimes I think I have to disagree with them, and this was a tough one for me this week. I hate to admit it, but, you know, while Superman won, I think Thor at least would give him a run for his money. Uh, Superman, let's look at what he has going for him. He has superhuman strength. He is more powerful than a locomotive, which you may not think, well, aren't all superheroes stronger than a locomotive? Well, anymore they seem to be. But in the recent series, well, fairly recent in the last few years, All-Star Superman, his strength was tested to exceed the force of 200 quintillion tons. Doesn't that mean a lot to you? Well, in scientific notation, that's around 200 billion billion tons. So thanks a lot for those of you science geeks who actually figured that out. Get a life. So Superman is a strong dude, at least while he remains in the sunlight, or all the yellow sunlight. If he goes someplace that has like a purple sun or something, the guy is in trouble. His uh, invulnerability is uh, pretty much, he's he's immune to everything but kryptonite and magic, which could cause him some problems with Thor. Um, He can fly, we all know that, but in the beginning he started out he could only leap tall buildings with a single bound and jump great distances, Um, but eventually his powers grew as the character developed and he started being able to fly. He has superhuman speed, he can move, react, and run and fly extraordinarily fast. And uh, he was originally classified as being faster than a speeding bullet, but he has uh, hit speeds much faster than that now. Top speeds have ranged from nearly 100 miles per hour when he was first created in the 1930s to speeds now far greater than the speed of light. So Superman has gotten stronger and faster, better. Um, His thoughts and perceptions are are greatly accelerated too, and he's able to control his actions while moving at high speeds. 
which is a pretty handy trick because you can clean your room really, really fast and not make a mess while you're doing it. Um, his running speed oftentimes has been shown to be on par with that of the Flash. Uh, he has x-ray vision, which uh, helps him to see through solid objects, with the exception of lead. Uh, he has heat vision, which literally allows him to emit solar energy from his eyes. He has superhuman breath, and I hope he brushes, because that could kill somebody if he didn't. Superhuman hearing, he can even hear sounds on other planets, and yet somehow he's able to tune out other sounds and just be able to hear what's close to him. He has uh, superhuman olfactory senses. Uh, he, he has a heightened sense and can accurately, accurately sense um, smells comparable to like animals and dogs and things like that. And he can detect with his nose things like chemicals in a bomb hidden somewhere in a crowded room. He has um, eidetic memory, or we might call that photographic memory. Superman is occasionally shown to have flawless total recall of everything he's ever seen read or heard. I would love that ability. I think if I had a superpower and could choose a superpower, that would be mine because I forget stuff all the time. Um, so in turn, he's actually depicted often as being fluent in many languages as well because he never forgets anything. So Superman, you know, the reason some people find him kind of boring is he's the practically perfect hero. Although I have to say that the New 52 has actually been writing some good stories with Superman. His final ability that I'm looking at today is downright miraculous. He has an ability to not be recognized while wearing glasses, and if that's not miraculous, I don't know what is, because good grief, it's just glasses, folks. I mean, I know he acts different, but come on. Now, Thor. Thor is a, an interesting character that I really think could give Superman a run for his money, and Actually, in my opinion, I think Thor could beat Superman, and this is why. Let me tell you, he's half Asgardian. Now you got to be careful how you say that. Half Asgardian, half Elder God. Uh, the mighty Thor is the Norse god of thunder, and he is the most powerful being on the planet. One of the most powerful beings in the whole universe. Besides being the strongest man in creation, Thor has energy manipulation powers that are on par with the Silver Surfers, and magical abilities that have been shown on occasion to be as powerful as those of Doctor Strange himself. He's also armed with Mjolnir, the mystical warhammer that has been shown to be capable of opening passageways through space and time, blocking all sorts of energy blasts and bending the elements to its master's will. Thor has been known to swing Mjolnir at twice the speed of light. Thor is a Norse warrior god, trained and skilled in the arts of battle, and he has been doing battle for countless ages. Superman's only been doing battle since the 30s, alright? So, you know, for just stealth in battle, you know, and know-how, it seems like Thor would be there on that one. But he also has a complete mastery over the weather, he can open chasms in the earth. He can even drain the soul out of his opponent's body. or So he's obviously platonic in his philosophy. Or if the worst comes to worst, he can use the dreaded God Blast, an attack that is so powerful that one time Mjolnir shattered from the amount of power that Thor channeled. In addition to being the god of thunder, Thor is also a Norse 
the Norse god of strength, and as such he is physically the strongest of the Norse gods and one of the most powerful beings in the universe. His strength has been called unlimited, similar to Superman. His feats include easily lifting over a million tons without any effort. Now, I know that's not a billion billion tons or 200 billion billion tons like Superman, but he's still a pretty tough guy. Thor has overpowered superhumans as strong and as powerful as the Silver Surfer, Namor, Juggernaut, Hercules, the Hulk, the Red Hulk, or the Rolk as some people call him, the Sentry and the Gladiator in single combat. Now, if he was able to conquer the Sentry, if you don't know who the Sentry is, the Sentry is basically a deeply flawed, agoraphobic, schizophrenic Superman with the powers of a god. So in my opinion, on some level, he's already beat Superman when you look at that character. So although the listeners have said by their votes Superman would win, well, some people said a cookie or Batman would win, but between Superman and Thor, the listeners say Superman wins. I don't disagree, but I don't fully agree either because I think depending on the conditions, we all know Superman cannot withstand magic, and there are some magic powers to Thor. So... I think I have to give the fight to Thor on some level, but on the other level, I'll give it to Superman. So what I'm trying to say here is I can't make a decision. Now next week's question of the week can be answered at the face, uh, Voices in My Head Facebook page um, on Facebook and also at rickleyjames.com or you can also call in to the listener line at 937-505-0162 and we'll play your answer on the air. The question for next week, I'm going to be stretching you a little bit, making you think it's okay for you to think outside the box. We're going to leave the realm of superheroes behind us and talk about a whole new category, and this is a preference according to you, all right? They're sweet. They're syrupy. The question is, who wins, waffles or pancakes? If you have the choice between waffles or pancakes, who's going to win? So it's the question of the ages. Tell me why at the Voices in My Head Facebook page or on rickleyjames.com. Once again, that phone number you can call in is 937-505-0162. Thank you very much for being a part of the Question of the Week. Question of the Week. Well, listeners, we have a treat this week. Matthew Cole joined me in a Skype call for this particular podcast, and we had a wonderful conversation on Superman, patriotism, and the church. You may wonder how those things are connected, and if you listen, I think you'll find some intriguing things in our conversation. He's an extremely smart guy, one of my oldest friends from college days, and I appreciate him taking the time to be with me here on Voices in My Head this week. Let me apologize in advance for a couple of technical difficulties. Um, I did have uh, some problems with my internet connection, and it seemed like the call kept dropping, sometimes mid-conversation. Um, so I tried to edit things to, to make them as seamless as possible, but there's a couple places where the volume is a little uneven, and uh, one of my dogs is barking a little bit in the background. Just a few things that you have to get used to whenever you're doing podcasting at home, but for the most part, I think you're going to be able to hear things quite well. So without any further ado... I don't really know what a do is, so without further hesitation, here is the conversation that I had with Matthew Cole on Voices in My Head, Episode 4. God bless you, and enjoy. Well, here we are on Voices in My Head with an old friend of mine, the high, holy... 
Matthew Cole. We joked around that he is the high and holy Matthew Cole, but uh, Matthew is one of my oldest friends going back to college days, actually. We met each other, I guess it was freshman year, and he lived right across the hallway from me. And uh, Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your, your education background, what you're doing now, your family, and anything else that you think is pertinent to the listeners of Voices in My Head. Yeah, my uh, as you said, my name is Matthew Coleman, and I, and I do like his most high holiness. That's a that's a decent title. I I can work with that. <laughs> um, my uh, uh, just a few of those things actually going to go a little bit in reverse order. Um, I have a, a beautiful wife. Her name is uh, Kara Cole, who uh, tolerates me ninety uh, percent of the time, which is a great blessing. And we have a, a daughter. Her name is Mabry. She's three years old, and she's going to be a, a, a big sister coming up in May. We've got a a, a fourth or a fourth in the family. A uh, a second child on the way. Um, I uh, am currently pastoring at Calvary Church in Nazarene, located in Lexington, Kentucky, and we've been here, uh, we actually just celebrated our eighth Christmas here, and uh, it's a great place to serve, a great community to be a part of. Uh, as far as educational background goes, uh, as you mentioned, we were together at Trebekah Nazarene University, which is uh, one of the uh, seven uh, Nazarene colleges that's in the U.S. Uh, it's in Nashville, Tennessee. I uh, did a BA there in uh, pastoral ministries, an MA in theology, and then actually as I did my uh, Master's of Divinity at Asbury Theological Seminary. And uh, as far as other pertinent information going by uh, uh, the shows of yours I've listened to so far, I'm an avid uh, Spider-Man fan. Excellent. Well, I almost wore my Spider-Man shirt today, and not that anybody can see because we're not on camera, but I decided I would wear my Superman shirt instead. Uh, how has your morning been? I, I've had a good one so far. I, I showered. I, I had a beard for about the last 19 days, and I just shaved it this morning, and I'm still in my slippers. But uh, anyway, how has your morning been? Um, it's been incredible, actually. Uh, been up a little bit longer than that. Got the uh, got my daughter off to uh, preschool, and uh, actually, I do have a beard, and I do have my Spider-Man shirt on today. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, the reason that I that I have Matthew on here uh, with me today is we're going to be talking about a subject that really uh, is very divisive uh, among a lot of church people and even non-church people, really, and that's the topic of patriotism and uh, and what place that that it would have among a community of believers, specifically of the Christian faith. As we talk about this, it's actually, I hope it's going to be a lighthearted conversation, but there, there is a lot of controversy around a subject like this. And uh, one of the things that in recent days, um, actually, this came up in a comic book, in Action Comics number 900, and uh, th there was a, a short nine-page story, which in a, a few minutes, uh, Matt and I are going to do a reader's theater and, and let you guys hear what that story was like. But for as long as, uh, as I can remember, Superman as a character uh, has been about uh, what three things, Matt? Truth, justice, and the American way. Truth, justice, and the American way. And uh, from his beginning days, you know, it's, it's always been very uh, all-American, very patriotic. And um, it's interesting how there's been a lot of comparisons made with the character of Superman, not only with Moses and other biblical figures, but he's also been seen as, as a Christ figure as well, especially if you get into some of the movies, um, this whole analogy of, of uh, someone that's been sent here from another world to our world, from a father who uh, you know, wanted to help 
show people of our world the way. Um, it even goes through the comics where eventually, you know, Superman uh, has even died uh, protecting people and died uh, to make sure that the people around them could have life and then was resurrected again later in comics. So it's interesting that, you know, as we talk about Christianity and patriotism and even Christ, the parallels that go along with Superman are very interesting. And in Action Comics number 900, uh, they dropped a bombshell um, that I personally loved and thought it was great, but for the most part, it seems like all of the press about it has been bad. Um, but it really, at least as far as the discussion for patriotism in the church, I think it opens up a, a very good conversation. So this isn't specifically a comic book topic today as much as we're just using a, a story in a comic to help us have a dialogue about something else that's very important to faith. So, um, with that being said, we are going to hear uh, from Matt, and feel free, Matt, to interrupt me whenever you like, but I'm just going to share some a couple things that I found in researching online about the history of the character of Superman, and uh, how he's kind of grown alongside of the idea of patriotism. Um, if you go to a, a website, it's actually called the Jewish Virtual Library, uh, you'll find this article uh, about Superman and uh, by a, a person, Blair Kramer. And uh, Blair says, No comic book hero embodies American ideals as does Superman. Uh, every, as everyone knows, the man with the S on his chest symbolizes truth, justice, and the American way. What fewer people know is that the creators and definers of Superman's Americanism were Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, two Jewish teenagers from Cleveland. Superman's early development was awkward. Siegel first used the name in 1933 for a science fiction story titled The Reign of Superman with illustrations by Schuster. Inspired by the German philosopher Nietzsche, Siegel's first Superman was an evil mastermind with advanced mental powers. Unfortunately, the text of this story has been lost to history. Well, after Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933 and proceeded to distort Nietzsche's concept of Superman, Siegel and Schuster decided to rethink their own concept of Superman's character. They changed their Jewish-created Superman to a force for good. Their biggest challenge was finding a publisher interested in producing a Superman comic. It took five years to find one. In 1938, just before the outbreak of war in Europe and at a low point in the Depression, Siegel and Schuster were working for Harry Donafield and Jack Leibowitz at DC Comics in New York. There, an editor finally agreed to let Superman appear in the first issue of Action Comics in 1938. Possessing superhuman powers, Superman leaped tall buildings in a single bound, and bullets bounced off his chest as he lifted automobiles and ripped steel doors from their hinges. In the first issue, Superman even rescued battered wives from abusive husbands. When America entered World War II after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Superman's character evolved into a combat hero. He destroyed Nazi armor, Japanese submarines, and everything else that was thrown at the Allies. In fact, the cover of a 1944 issue of Superman featured the Man of Steel throttling Hitler and Tojo by the collar. Uh, and I almost am finished. Sorry, Matt. I'm, I hate to be taking all this time. Um, but the, the last paragraph here, despite his superhuman powers, Superman shared some characteristic traits with the majority of American Jews in the 1940s. Like them, he had arrived in America from a foreign world. His entire family, in fact, his entire race, had been wiped out in a Holocaust-like disaster on his home planet, Krypton. 
like Jewish, uh, like German Jewish parents who sent their children on kinder transports, or the baby Moses set adrift in the bulrushes, Superman's parents launched him to Earth in hopes that he would survive. And while the mild-mannered Clark Kent held a white-collar job as a reporter by day, the real man behind Kent's meek exterior was a virile, indestructible crusader for justice. This fantasy must have resonated among American Jews who felt powerless to help their brethren in the death camps of Europe. Superman obeys the Talmudic injunction to do good for its own sake and heal the world where he can. Siegel and Schuster created a mythic character who reflected their own Jewish values. Actually, two things, though, that, that I wanted to point out about the, uh, the piece that you read. Uh, one of the things it talks about in there is, you know, that uh, when, he, when he debuts as an actual hero, along with, uh, um, you know, the idea of rescuing battered wives and uh, ripping the doors off cars, lifting buildings in a single bound. It listed in there, you know, that bullets bounce off his chest, but they didn't uh, point out in there one of his weaknesses that basically after you've emptied the uh, the gun at him, if you throw the gun at him, he will duck and dodge. <laughs> that, that's one of the things with Superman. That's especially uh, true in the old, uh, the old Superman television show, yeah. Um, I also find it kind of interesting, and, and, and you know, this is just some research that you had looked up, but um, uh, as preparing for the show, looking at some of the articles uh, that I've read um, that have come out over the last year about this particular issue that we're going to be discussing, I find it interesting that, you know, here we um, we see characters like Superman and, and others that have been referred to in sort of the same genre, of course, coming from uh, the Marvel Universe, talking about Captain America that whenever we have this coming out during war eras and they, they, they sort of promote this idea of a, a war character, a soldier-type character who's, who's coming in and uh, quote-unquote whooping the bad guys. Um, I find it interesting that we call it comic books, but if the enemy is doing it, we call it propaganda. Very interesting. Well, we're almost to the point where we're going to actually look at this issue, but it's very true. Uh, and Superman is associated with a lot of, of uh, pro-America propaganda um, in that World War II era, even uh, the old cartoon show, um, I, f I forget the name of the, the company that made the cartoon shows in 1942, but um, there's one cartoon in particular where uh, Lois and Clark are trapped in, in the Yokohama Navy Yard in Japan, and uh, Superman comes to the rescue by sabotaging ships and wreaking havoc upon the Japanese military. Um, and so, so since, since this was made during the war, um, it could definitely be used as an example of propaganda, um, you know, going in and, and wiping out the enemy. And, and then also um, war bonds, uh, both uh, actually something that I found online, it said that uh, comic book publishers DC and Marvel carried advertisements and columns urging their readers to tell parents to buy bonds and purchase 10 cent defense stamps. Um, and the covers of Batman and Superman comics appealed to readers to buy war bonds and keep those bullets flying and slap a Jap, uh, which is, which, you know, which is pretty offensive, you know, in our day and time. That's not politically correct at all, but, you know, keep those bullets flying and slap a Jap. You heard it from Superman and Batman, folks. It's not as if, though, you know, I suddenly say, well, we, we have to... Uh... Um, you know, bash everybody for their efforts to win a war and, and not grateful for the efforts that they did in putting down an evil like uh, what was going on in Nazi Germany. Um, but at the exact same time, either the ideals that we hold to in peacetime of, of, of tolerance uh, for humanity and love for one another matter when it's on its worst days or they never mattered at all. 
That's true. And uh, there, there's something I heard not long ago at a church I was playing some music in, and that morning the pastor there was talking about, you know, we, we decide in advance what kind of people we're going to be. And he was using the example of tithing just as an example. And he said, you know, we don't wait until we don't have any money left in the bank to decide whether or not we're going to give money to the church, whether or not we're going to tithe. So we decide that in, in advance that um, that God is worthy and that we trust in him and that it's a trust issue and and, uh, and it's it's the same with all of life and all of things about faith we have to decide that in advance uh, of how, what kind of people we're going to be when times are not so good yeah um, well let's let's go ahead and, and move on now first of all I, I I got a definition of allegiance because this is going to help us I think and uh, Yahoo does kind of a neat thing where they compile many different def definitions from many different place, places and kind of make this one uh, what they consider the best definition of the word. And uh, I, I like their uh, definition of, of allegiance here, and this is going to play a lot in the story we're about to look at. Um, and and uh, loyal, uh, or allegiance means loyalty to the extent that the thing to which you have pledged your allegiance will have a moral and legal hold over you and can call upon you to act on its behalf. If you have sworn allegiance to a nation, then in time of war you can be called up to serve. Um, you can be prevented by that nation from holding the passport of another country, and that nation comes first in your priorities. And that's a definition of allegiance for our purposes today anyway. That sound good to you? That'll work. Okay. Well, uh, listeners, this is going to be another first on Voices in My Head. We're going to do um, a reader's theater, so to speak, of these nine pages, and it will go probably faster than the, uh, the thing I read at the very beginning. Playing the part of Gabriel Wright, the president's national security visor in this comic, is none other than Matthew Cole. And playing the part of Superman, which the part I was, uh, in my mind, born to play, um, and on, only in my mind, in your mind, only in my mind and in my heart, uh, I'll be playing the part of Superman. So the scene opens, uh, and and if you guys, you know, I encourage you to pick up a copy of this. You can find it at comic shops, or you can download it through like the DC Comics app. And it's just a nine-page story in in what really I think is a 96-page comic book. Um, but it's written by David S. Goyer, who uh, is one of the writers, really the main writer for the Dark Knight movies, and um, I think one of the main writers on Inception with Christopher Nolan, a very knowledgeable guy. Um, so the, the scene opens at Camp David in Frederick, Maryland, and um, there's a man who is uh, Gabriel Wright, the president's security advisor. He's looking at his watch, and he's waiting on someone. And Superman flies in and says, hope you haven't been waiting out here long. Sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, now they're shaking hands, and uh, uh, Gabriel Wright... Thank you for coming. My name is... Gabriel Wright, the President's National Security Advisor. Then you're aware of the gravity of the situation. I understand why the President is concerned, obviously, but as for some of the specifics, well, I guess I take issue with how things have been characterized in the media. Maybe you could set the record straight for us then. Why did you do it? Why in God's name? What, what in God's name were you thinking? Those marine snipers you've got stationed on that ridge about 200 oh. yards to the north? 
Sorry, there's my dog barking in the background. Ah. Lily, quiet. <laughs> That's not in the story, folks. All right, back to Superman talking about the uh, snipers. Their winter camo doesn't do much to hide them since I can see into the UV and infrared spectrums. That high-velocity round in their primary sniper rifle is kryptonite, right? You're expecting me to give you trouble? Bottom line, we don't know what to think. We're hoping you haven't gone rogue, hoping you can put our minds at ease. So I'm going to ask you one more time. What in God's name did you think you were doing flying into Tehran? I followed the news, like I said, and I saw reports of the Iranian people demonstrating. There had been, uh, there'd been violence the week before. Ahmadinejad's, I hope I said that right, Ahmadinejad's regime <laughs> had overreacted. People had been killed. Some of the demonstration organizers had been disappearing. Apparently, the local protest leaders had been using social media sites to help them organize. And the government had been piggybacking onto those sites, so they knew who to arrest and where they'd be. The Iranian army had been winning the pub warning the public about engaging in further demonstrations. They said there would be harsh repercussions. But these people, students, shopkeepers, mothers, fathers, children, they were putting their lives on the line despite the warnings. I wanted to let them know that they weren't alone. As a superhero for Metropolis Protector, I fought just about every imaginable threat. Alien invaders, time-traveling despots, rogues with every kind of costume and gimmick you can think of. I'm good when it comes to fighting apocalyptic threats, but the everyday degradations that humans suffer, dying of thirst, hunger, people being denied the basic human rights, I've never been very effective at stopping things like that, and I want to be. So I showed up in solidarity. I promised myself that I wouldn't directly engage no matter what happened. It was an act of civil disobedience, nonviolent resistance. I stayed in Azadi Square for 24 hours. I didn't move. I didn't speak. I just stayed there. In that time, the protesters' ranks grew from an estimated 120,000 people to well over 1 million. Some of the people threw roses at my feet. Others threw green sashes and flags, the color of their protest. Counter-demonstrators threw Molotov cocktails at me. But the army of the guardian of the Islamic revolution never fired a shot. The demonstration began and ended peacefully. Then after 24 hours, I left. But did it do any good? Did that regime promise to start institution, uh, instituting democratic reforms? No. So what purpose did your showboating serve? Your actions have created an international incident. The Iranian government is accusing you of acting on behalf of the president's behalf, and they're calling your interference an act of war. I realize that, and of course you're right, it was foolish of me, which is why I intend to speak before the United Nations tomorrow and inform them that I am renouncing my U.S. citizenship. Dun-dun! What? I'm tired of having my actions construed as instruments of U.S. policy. Truth, justice, and the American way, well, it's not enough anymore. The world's too small, too connected. When I look at you, I see you in every spectrum. I can see the microscopic demodex mites that live in your eyelashes, the precancerous mole on your left cheek that you probably think is just a mole, the halo of electromagnetic radi radiation leaking from your smartphone, 
I'm an alien, Mr. Wright. Born on another world, I can't help but see the bigger picture. I've been thinking too small. I realize that now. You asked me if my showboating was worth it, if it affected any meaningful change, maybe not on the macro scale, but as I was flying away, I looked down and saw something. Two men, a member of the army of the guardian of the Islamic revolution and a protester. The protester was extending a rose to the soldier. I thought the soldier was going to fire, but then he did something unexpected and incredibly brave. And the picture shows the soldier reaching out and taking the rose from the protester. And then there is the final uh, inside of a Superman shield that says end. So uh, a, a nine-page story where Superman renounces his citizenship and the internet blew up, <laughs> basically, with people writing articles about how terrible Superman was. Um, there were stories of fathers going outside in the yard and setting their Superman dolls on fire. Um, people, I mean, I don't think doing protests, but there was definitely some uh, some major protesting about Superman and and all that. So, what what do you think of this? What's your first thought of this, Matt? Well, you're talking about the protests, and there was there were definitely significant calls for boycotting uh, DC Comics and. Uh, some of the articles that I read even, you know, went so far as to say, you know, we're not just boycotting DC Comics, but uh, Warner Brothers does their movies, so boycott them, don't buy any CDs, don't buy any toys, don't buy any comics, and and it, it became incredibly obvious that, and even some of the articles went so far as to say, you know, or some of the, sorry, some of the blog responses to some of the articles went so far to say, well, um, Superman has to bow down to the, uh, the almighty dollar. Uh, we'll we'll get what we want by boycotting them. Hmm. Well, interestingly enough, yeah, and that's that, that's something that uh, in our in our I don't know I want to I don't want to call them our finest hours, but as people in the church, uh, it seems like we boycott a lot of things, and you know I I my major thing is boycott hell. You know, let's not let's not go there, but. Um, as I as I think about this and, and and all, I don't think I've ever heard a positive response to this story, and uh, I'm I'm a bit of a podcast nerd, and, and I listen to some really great podcasts. Uh, one of which is the Superman Homepage podcast. They have one called the Radio KAL, and uh, and even people who are you know like fanatical about their Superman worship, you know, almost have been extremely upset by this, and so. Um, the the fact that I've not heard anyone with a positive response to this story makes me want to come out and I guess voice my opinion. Uh, that may even be a little dangerous at a time, but I think as a person of faith who represents the church, I think honestly Superman took a stance that is very much like Jesus and possibly embodied Christ more in this story than in any other I've ever read by him. But, um, just out of curiosity, in your research, and you're you're finding these different opinions. Where, uh, did you happen to come across one from Seinfeld? I I didn't. Although I, I was just curious. I mean, you know, since we're talking about uh, Superman specialist or expert. Yeah, that's right. I wonder what Jerry Seinfeld would say. Jerry Seinfeld, if you're listening, I'd love to have you as a guest on my show. So uh, come on and and tell us what you thought of Action 900. That'd be great. Um, one of the uh, responses that I saw, it was in a, uh, an article by a gentleman, uh, his last name is uh, Shorkin, uh, I think is the pronunciation, Kenneth Shorkin, 
and uh, the uh, the article uh, obviously is tending towards the side, like you said, it, it's a very negative response. Um, um, but he gets down to the end, and, and I find it interesting that in his last paragraph he says, uh, whether a growing boycott, or rather a growing call to boycott DC Comics comes to fruition over the controversial move to have Superman renounce his citizenship has yet to be seen, which seems like a great place to end the article. And then he goes on to write, but most Americans know that the boycott is one of the greatest tools to protest uh, that we have to show our distaste of a product, industry, or company. Almost as if, though, you know, he's going to get in our last little shot of, uh, but let's go ahead and boycott uh, because I want you to, type of thing. Right. <laughs> so, well, as I look at this, um, I, I, I want us to, to talk about um, the Christian response to something like this. I mean, what, what if this was... Um, I mean, I get this picture in my mind, like, what if this was Christ who said more more than a few things about uh, about the government, about giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's, and uh, more, more than a few things about being peacemakers, and he actually reached out to people like Samaritans who uh, Jews were not supposed to be associated with in any way, and there was this sense of nationalism in the time of Christ. Um, and I, I think there's ample evidence from Scripture that Jesus was not a fan of nationalism in any way. And uh, how do you think that, that we got to the state where we are now, where it's been, I guess, married to the church in some ways, and especially in America, that the church and America are, and patriotism especially, are synonymous? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it goes back to what you said earlier in your, your definition of allegiance. Allegiance is not one of those those things as if, though, it exists in a vacuum, and then once you proclaim your allegiance, it's there. Uh, your definition that you, you cited earlier was a really good definition, and that it, it points out allegiance to one thing, which ultimately, when allegiance has come down, I may have an allegiance to... Uh, America, I may have an allegiance to my family, I may have an allegiance to the kingdom of God. What truly shows what our allegiance is, is when those two things conflict. And the reality of it is, nationalism is not a Christian kingdom of God ideal. Um, and the idea of holding to a nationalism, uh, holding to some aspect where, even with some of the articles we've seen on this, you know, where it's almost as if though Superman is a possession of the American people to prove our point, uh, whatever our point may be. Um, he's stepping more into the role of the person who's the good Samaritan. He says, you know, hey, we, we have to love people because our allegiance is not to a flag or a, a general government proposal, but our, our allegiance is first to living out this standard that says that all human beings matter regardless of if they're protesting uh, on... Um, you know, um, in Beijing, or if they're protesting and uh, they're at Tiananmen Square, or if they're protesting at Tehran, or if they're protesting is lining up and throwing tea boxes off the side of a ship in Boston. Yeah, um, and and Jesus speaks about the kingdom. He he's never really uh, what what he says is very political, but not in the sense of the politics that we think of in terms of world powers, um, he really is all about this ideal of the coming kingdom, and we even see it in the prayer of Jesus of, of your kingdom come, your will be done, and uh, and that it, that collides a lot with uh, 
the kingdoms of this world. All right, well, leading into this discussion um, a, a little bit further, because uh, there's there's really uh, people on both sides of this issue, and I, and I don't want to come out. It's really easy to go and, and say, because someone doesn't feel the way we do, they're wrong. And, and um, really, you know, Christian participation in, like, patriotic, nationalistic celebrations um, they seem to evolve, revolve like around two stances. It's either right or it's wrong, you know. And people on both sides of the issue, they resort to endless proof texting of scripture to find the passage which affirms their position. Um, and, and that's always a complete misuse of scripture to go in and, and in case you don't know what proof texting is, listeners, it's taking a passage of scripture completely out of context just to make it prove your point and, and make it, um, make it say something you want it to say um, and, I, and I think it's there's a fair amount on both sides of this issue of people that have they've done a good amount of proof texting on both ends um, a great example of that actually Rick uh, is you know if, if somebody wanted to look at it if you look at Matthew 4 um, the first 11 verses there where Jesus is being tempted uh, the very first time Satan tempts him his response is it's written and so the second time, whenever uh, Satan tempts him the second time, he actually comes back and says, oh yeah, it's written, do this. Of course, taking that passage completely out of context, and then the response of Jesus back, yeah, but it's also written. And just because someone's quoting scripture doesn't mean it's being quoted rightly. That's a very good point that you're making. Um, uh, and Satan in scripture seems to be um, the best at using scripture, <laughs> but wrongly. Yeah. Um, so it's maybe the better question to ask um, if the activities we're participating in will allow us to continue being faithful disciples of Jesus. You know, um, is is what we're doing hurting our witness as disciples of Christ? Is is Jesus Lord or is Caesar Lord? Um, and and it's you know, um, in my in my opinion and in a lot of people that I talk to. It's not wrong to display the American flag in the sanctuary if we display every other nation's flag as well, because um, he is the God of every nation and and not the God of one. And um, and it's I think we see from the gospel that the kingdom of God is supposed to be something that draws us all together. And you know Paul even even says no matter who you are, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave. Free, male, female, um, we, you know, Jew, Gentile, we are called to this kingdom and not to a nationalism. Um, and and there's even an argument that could be said, you know, as far as if you're coming to Lexington, Kentucky, where I'm pastoring at, and you walk in and there is an American flag in our sanctuary, and and one could make the argument, well, um, we're not saying that he's not the God of other nations. We're just saying. You're, you're actually in this current setting, and we want to remind you that he is the God of this nation. But I think we also need to be aware, while uh, you and I and, and Joe, who lives across the street over here, who's lived their entire life in the American nation and, and consider themselves American citizens, may walk in and, and, not, uh, and understand that, may not see the disharmony of it, um, not too long ago, I was reading a paper, and, and, um, and in it, it had a photo of the, uh, um, the um, um, consecration of the Bishop of uh, Berlin uh, that took place in, I think it was 1938 or 1939, and in this, this photo, which is a panoramic view of the sanctuary as the Bishop is coming forward to be consecrated for this position, 
uh, you see the communion table up front, you see the cathedral, the chair that's just behind the communion table, and, and the cardinal there about to confer upon him this particular order. And then on both sides of the sanctuary at the front, uh, both sides flanking the communion table, are these probably 25-foot-tall banners with swastikas. But in their mind, they're saying he's the god of this nation, but yet looking back historically how offensive of a statement that can seem. And even, you know, when Nazi soldiers would wear God with us on their uniform, yeah. and uh, everybody thinks that their nation has God on their side, and I, I would point people to um, the book of Joshua uh, before the Battle of Jericho, um, where the question is asked of this uh, godlike figure with a sword, who do you fight for? And he says, I, I fight for neither, you know, and, and it's this idea of, of uh, you know, God's not on your nation's side. He's not no, on, he's on Tebow's side. Yeah, he's on Tebow's side, of course, but other than that, um, yeah, he's not on anybody's side. And uh, this, this whole brings us back to the whole thing of, you know, how can we be faithful disciples of Christ? Um, I want to be faithful to Christ if if I'm in Africa, if I'm in uh, Germany, if I'm in America, and many times that means uh, going against what that nation is about. So bring this all back to the word allegiance, and and even when Superman uh, renounces his American citizenship, um, I wanted to stand up and cheer when I read that, not because I'm anti-American and I want people to understand. There's there's nothing in me that says that I that I hate my country or anything like that. As a matter of fact, I love it and uh, I love the people in it and I love a lot about it. But it's not my God. And if there was a way to give up being an American citizen so I could be a world citizen with all people in solidarity with the king, kingdom of God, I think that would be ideal. But the fact is, even the fact that I said that could probably lend people to send me death threats and stuff. And and over the fact that I say I want to be in solidarity and share the love of Christ with everyone, someone would send a death threat over that. So, and it, and that shows us where where we've gone wrong with this idea of patriotism being married to the church and being married to Jesus. Um, there's it's a, almost as if patriotism gets us in, in the church to where we're almost forced to say, um, I love you with the love of Christ, and Jesus loves everyone who's just like us. Exactly. Um, God loves you as long as you're just like me. And um, now, and I, and I really want to emphasize that, again, I'm not, I'm not a hater of the country, and I'm not someone that's here to try to overthrow the country or anything like that. And, you know, don't come at me with the, well, love it or leave it, you know, type thing, because that's, that's just stupid. But um, anyway, uh, let, let's look together real quick at Romans 13, because this is a passage that uh, is much debated, I guess, um, over as to why... Um, why Christians should be patriots and why we should um, uh, marry, I guess, the country to the nation and everything. Um, and Romans 13, I'm reading from, um, from the NIV, and it says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So, uh, so Matt, uh, being subject to governing authorities, and uh, if you do good, your, your government um, won't treat you badly. Has that been the case throughout all history, that if people do right, their government will leave them alone? Well, uh, along with being an avid uh, um, Spider-Man fan, I'm also a, uh, uh, an avid fan of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Um, uh, for those that may or, or, or may not have heard him, just a quick refresher, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a, a German uh, pastor and theologian uh, who was alive uh, during the rise of the Third Reich of Nazi Germany. And, um, and for the most part, uh, sought uh, a very uh, non-aggressive, non-violent uh, approach to trying to uh, stand against Hitler, um, was involved with a, a plot uh, to assassinate Hitler, but aside from that, the, the other uh, attempts were, were considerably non-violent. And um, actually, it was, uh, I think, three months uh, post um, uh, the surrender of Germany that his family was actually able to commemorate him and his funeral, uh, which took place actually in England, uh, because it wasn't until then that they had finally learned the news of his, uh, uh, he was murdered, uh, actually I would prefer to use the term martyred, um, in a, a German concentration camp. Hmm. Well, you know... So to answer your question, sometimes um, supporting the government or um, um, trying your best to make a difference in your government for the better usually ends up with you dead. <laughs> Seems like that oftentimes. Um, now, I, I really feel like, you know, those of those of people who are quick to quote Romans 13, we we should remember that the chapter before this, and, and there really was not a division in the original uh, writings between chapters. This was all, you know, one letter being written together. Um, and we'll look at that in just a second. But the idea of, of everyone being subject to governing authorities, um, I, I think it's interesting that this doesn't say anywhere in here give your undying uh, allegiance to the country you're in um, and do anything that they ask you to no matter what it is and be patriotic and wave their flag and curse any other nation who doesn't agree with you it simply says submit it, it says be subject to the governing authorities and um, it, it I think that, that that takes on a whole different meaning, you know. Is, uh, Matt, what would you say the difference is there between uh, submission versus patriotism? Well, and, and like you point out, this is not a, a passage that has anything to do with nationalism or patriotism. Right. This is a passage that says submit, and, and it also has a motivation to it. It doesn't just, you know, Paul is not speaking, once again, he's not speaking in a vacuum here. Um, Paul is saying to those who are, who are reading this passage, who are hearing this passage, which is consequently written to the church that exists in the shadow of Caesar himself, uh, you know, where, where the Christians that are part of this church are living in the same city alongside Caesar. And, and he's telling them, you know, submit to this authority, not because you're pro-Rome. Rather, submit to this authority because you're pro-kingdom of heaven. You're pro-the uh, ethic of the politic of Jesus. Uh, because what's taking place in this is he's saying, Submit to them because these are the people who are ultimately seeking 
a sense of goodness, a sense of order for humanity. And the reality of it is, is we as Christians, we function a whole lot better. Um, uh, at least we we would like to think we can function so much better in a system where there's order and 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 establishment, but not for the sake of Rome itself. We're doing this because this gives us opportunity to show um, the love of Christ by by seeking a society where there is such things as goods being rewarded and evil being punished, because that's the way the kingdom is. Right. And if, if, you, if we were to look, like we're going to right now, just before that in Romans 12, realizing that Paul was among a group of Christians who, was, who were highly persecuted, you know, for their faith, and they were persecuted by their government. Um, it's, it's interesting that, that Paul says before this, um, bless those who persecute you, you know, which is one of the few times that he actually um, is reminiscent of Jesus, because Paul doesn't really quote from Jesus that often. Um, but, you know, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position, do not be conceited. And then we get into verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil, be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Uh, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And, and I really feel like Paul is describing a very you know, evil, oppressive government when he's saying submit to them. And he has just said, submit to your enemy by loving them, you know, love them into the kingdom. Uh, and, and you will be overcome, not by our force, but by our love that we share. If you're hungry, we're going to feed you. If you're in need, we're going to meet that need as best we can. If you curse us, we're going to bless you. So be subject to the authorities, not in the sense of we're going to be zealots and overtake this government. We are about overtaking, but with the love of God. You know, and I, I really think that's where Paul was going with this passage, if we look at it holistically and not as a proof text. But in all fairness, do you think that someone who would describe themselves as both patriot and Christian, and, and we're talking in the context of the United States, American patriot and Christian, do you think they would really disagree with anything that you just said? Um, I think it probably depends on the person. You know, I think um, I think in principle they're going to say, oh yeah, yeah, we agree with that. We agree mm -hmm. with Romans twelve. You know, that's what that's what the Bible teaches. I think where the problem comes in is, and and I think one of the reasons that I'm, I'm kind of on the same page with where you're talking about this is, violence occurs when we reach the end of faith. Hmm. Violence occurs, and 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 this is a nationalistic and a patriotic issue. Uh, because, um, and I'm quoting John Howard Yoder here, but um, uh, he says that the most uh, uh, primitive uh, form of violence is a failure to listen. Uh, it's that violence it starts in our words long before it will ever uh, go to stick stones and bullets and missiles. Um, and and I think that one of the things you see, especially in this Romans Romans 13, where he's talking about how to exist in a political world again not politics in the sense of who's who's voting for who but in the in the fact that we relate to one another that's the, the truest sense of the term politics 
that in, in, a, in a political way of expressing the gospel, violence occurs whenever we say, you know what, we've loved our neighbor and we've tried to get along with our neighbor, but, but those aren't working, so now I'm going to resort to force. And then nationalism comes in once we started resorting to force, saying either you're with me or you're against me. Hmm. And and I think some of the people that you you see and and would use the Superman comic um, 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 to express that is, oh wait wait wait, um, suddenly now Superman's not with us. Well then everybody who's associated with the story, writing it, publishing it, uh, producing it, whatever the case may be, um, obviously they're they're extremists or leftists in their uh, and I quote this from one of the articles they're slapping in the face of America which you know your listeners just heard the, the the entire thing never once does he insult America in the entire comic book he's just no longer their possession right and and for too long I think Jesus has been a possession and even a weapon of a lot of you know fundamentalist American movements um, and there was a line on an episode of Lost one time, and somebody says, "Jesus Christ is not a weapon," and uh, it's it's a very you know interesting line and interesting path to take. But um, well, well, we've talked about a lot, and I, I wanted to share something with you, and and then maybe you can share just a little bit about uh, you. You just got back to the country actually not too long ago, um, and you were at a thing called Third Wave, and I want you to tell our listeners what that is. But just before you do, I want to set this up by this is not a dead issue in our church. As a matter of fact, in, in my church a couple weeks ago, um, we have two services on Sunday. One's a traditional, and the second service is a, is a real kind of uh, postmodern type service. Uh, well, just before that second service, um, in the middle of the pa- uh, platform, uh, it was after Sunday school, and, and we all walked in, uh, all the pastors and the praise team leaders, and just below the cross, which is in is central to our sanctuary, um, there was the American flag, and somebody had carried it up onto the platform and stuck it right in the middle of the stage, and it was even uh, covering up the cross a little bit because it was so tall, and it was sitting right behind the drums, and all of us on the platform were looking at each other thinking, was this for a sermon illustration? And then my pastor walked up and said, did one of you guys do this? <laughs> and so we still don't know who the uh, who the phantom flag bearer was that took it up. But it's obviously a felt issue that we're not that we're not uh, pledging allegiance enough at church. So um, you know, I, I guess this is felt in some way. And my church is you know very much you know on patriotic Sundays. I I do my best to be gone if I can because. Um, I may be the one of the only people, but it, I, I find it very hard because I feel like I'm I'm betraying God. Where you know it should be to me, this is a time set up for God and His worship, and not for the nation. And uh, uh, you know, going back to before you describe your trip experience, Matt, um, do, do you think it's okay for um, a Christian? to pledge their allegiance to a country or to pledge their allegiance to things other than their Lord? You uh, uh, ask that in a way to make sure I'm trapped one way or the other, huh? Well, (laughs) (laughs) 
No, no, I wasn't intending that. I probably worded it wrong, but whatever. No, tell, it's, tell me it's about a very fair question, and and actually, before I get into the the third wave stuff, if you don't care, I'd like to to share a quote with you that I came across not too long ago. I, I mentioned Bonhoeffer earlier, and and the issue of nationalism. Um, Eric Metaxas, who is a uh, a scholar and, and has recently done a really good uh, uh, biography on the life and and the ministry in the times of Bonhoeffer. He writes this in his his, uh, uh, his prologue to the book, and one of the things that he points out is he's talking about how nationalism affects us. And there's a modernist problem that we have along with nationalism, and that once I identify myself based on my nation, it becomes very easy for me to identify the other based on their nationality. And what happens in that is I divorce myself from the humanity of the other human beings. And I start seeing them not as they are, as a face, as a as an individual human being created by God in His own image. But I start seeing them based on what I think of that other nationality. Uh, this is what Metaxas writes. He says, at the beginning of the war, it was possible to separate the Nazis from the Germans and recognize that not all Germans were Nazis. As the clash between the two nations wore on, and as more and more English fathers, sons, and brothers died. Distinguishing the difference became more difficult. Eventually, the difference vanished altogether. Realizing he needed to fuel the British war effort, Prime Minister Winston Churchill fused the Germans and the Nazis into a single hated enemy, the better to defeat it swiftly and end the unrelenting nightmare. When Germans, working to defeat Hitler and the Nazis, contacted Churchill and the British government, hoping for assistance to defeat their common enemies from the inside, hoping to tell the world that some Germans trapped inside the Reich felt much as they did, they were rebuffed. No one was interested in their overtures. It was too late. They couldn't participate in such evils and, when it was convenient, tried to settle for a separate peace. For the purposes of the war effort, Churchill maintained the fiction that there were no good Germans. It would even be said that the only good German, if one needed to use the phrase, was a dead German. That lack of nuance was also part of the hellishness of war. And, uh, and I bring that up because, especially in, in our, our, our conversation, what we see in Romans 12 and what we see in Romans 13, there's never a place where Paul says, become so dedicated to a nation that you quit seeing other people as human beings, that you quit seeing other people as created in, in the image of God, which is one of the... the the, the foundational tenets of our faith as, as Judeo-Christians, that, that it's the heartbeat of creation. And, um, and nationalism robs us of that exact thing. It, it takes us to a place to where you're no longer um, Ripley James, you're, you're an American. And therefore, as an American, you, you fit these stereotypes. Hmm. And, and, you know, beyond that, even just in my name, you're no longer someone who has been created uh, by a loving God and who a loving Savior died for. Um, your your identity is gone, you know, in that because you're you're an American first and foremost. And, the, you know, the, the uh, allegiance issue, you know, is that definition I read. It says the nation comes first in your priorities. And, um, and I, I, I think I struggle with that a lot. And I, I want to say this before we end this conversation um, I, I am grateful um, so much for 
people in my life and people who have given so much for me. Um, I think of Larry Taylor, my Sunday school teacher, who is a veteran and uh, was actually um, wounded in Vietnam. I think of other people um, who have fought in wars and are, you know, very patriotic people, but who have made Christ their Lord um, first and foremost, and, and they bow to him first. And so I don't want to say that I'm not appreciative, but I can say thank you to a person uh, for their sacrifice, which truly Jesus says uh, there's no greater love than that a man would lay down his life for another. And um, and, I, and I, I, I'm so grateful for those that have died for me. At the same time, I, that doesn't mean that I think that's the best way or that I think that um, taking up arms is necessarily even the Jesus way. And, uh, and I'm most interested in being faithful and trying to follow Christ as a disciple. Um, so I wanted to make sure I got that in there, that I'm not trying to disrespect the sacrifice anyone has made. And, and I agree with you 100%. There, there is no question in my mind, and, and I've had this discussion before. You, you mentioned it earlier, the person who says, you know, either, either like it the way I like it or just get out type mentality, which is kind of interesting considering that's also antithetical to what even the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence proclaim. Um, but while I am incredibly grateful for the sacrifices others have made, and, and I, I count it a blessing uh, to live where I live, my allegiance lies to the kingdom of God. And while I don't live somewhere else, um, you know, the, the reality of it is um, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, I don't know if that part recorded or not. I'm incredibly grateful for where I live. I'm incredibly grateful for the sacrifices that have made. But that still should not, A, seek me or keep me from seeking a better way. Um, I would like it if we, uh, uh, the passage in Isaiah, I'm looking forward to it coming true where he says uh, there's coming a day when we take the implements of war and we take our nuclear bombs and we figure out how to make farm tractors out of them. I'm looking forward to that day with great anticipation. Um, and, and I'm grateful for those that have sacrificed. But at the exact same time, that doesn't make um, nationalism and this sense of, of being identified by a country as opposed to by our creator. Um, the better option. That being said, um, uh, kind of got derailed by the. Uh, uh, that being said, I would hope with all that I am uh, that God is not less in Tehran than He is in Lexington. I would hope that God is not less in Rwanda than He is in Springfield, and I would hope that God is not less in Baghdad than He is in Washington D.C. Hmm. All right. Well. Um... Well, knowing that this podcast uh, will probably end the uh, preaching careers of both of us, um, at least in uh, certain parts of the country, um, let's move on just a little bit. Uh, it's, it's not totally outside of this conversation, but you just got back from a fantastic trip, I understand, and uh, yeah. we, we don't have a lot of time left in this interview. We're almost to an hour with just this part of the show. But um, could you tell us a little bit about Third Wave? And yep. uh, if, if you cut out again, I'll, I'll bring you back. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Third Wave is a quadrennial conference held by the Church of Nazarene, and it's held by the NYI, which stands for Nazarene Youth International. Uh, every four years, this event occurs. It, the first attempt at it was in uh, uh, South America. That was uh, uh, now uh, eight years ago. Uh, four years ago, uh, the second one took place. Uh, that was in Johannesburg, 
and this was the uh, third attempt and was an incredible success. Uh, the previous two have been as well. Uh, this one took place, uh, pardon me, uh, took place in Thailand. Uh, had some had some interesting first to it. It's the first time the Church of Nazarene has ever hosted a global conference uh, in the uh, uh, Asia Pacific region of the world. It's also the first time Church of Nazarene has uh, hosted a conference in a country that is very decidedly non-Christian. Uh, if you were to look at the Christian, uh, at the uh, religious makeup of the country of Thailand, um, an incredibly beautiful people. Uh, they uh, are about 95% Buddhist. Uh, somewhere between three and four percent of the population uh, claim the Islamic faith, and less than half a percent are uh, claim uh, the Judeo-Christian faith. Um, of that number, uh, it's actually stated uh, on record that there are more. Um, Buddhist monks uh, residing in Thailand than there are Christians. Um, it was an incredible conference. Basically, the idea is, is to get emerging leaders from the church uh, who are going to be leadership in the days ahead uh, to come together to gain a global perspective on uh, church leadership. Uh, the makeup of individual people there, uh, probably about 250 individuals there, uh, they com were composed of 57 different countries represented and somewhere in the neighborhood of 50-plus uh, uh, language groups being represented. Hmm. Um, beautiful thing, while we were there, we discussed issues ranging from evangelism in a non-Christian culture um, all the way through uh, human sex trafficking. Wow. Well, can you, can you share? I know this is going to be hard because you were there for a significant amount of time, but can you share one, like, really major experience that, that I guess impacted you in some way or maybe impacted the group you're with? Can I do two? I promise I'll keep them brief. Okay. Um, um, one of them was listening to the story about the floodwaters. Um, the, uh, the flooding that took place that started back in July of 2011 and, and understand that Thailand is as industrious and as technologically astute as any nation in the world. Uh, they are nowhere close to being a third world country. Um, they, they have uh, technological and industrial means and ends uh, as much as any place I've ever visited. Um, and it's a country that's used to flooding. It's, it's a low-lying country. There are three major river uh, systems that flow through that country that empty out all of Thai's watershed as well as a good section of southwestern China and part of Burma uh, or Myanmar. And, um, and in July, they experienced significant flooding places in uh, the city of Bangkok and the capital city were as much as 10 feet deep in water um, whenever the flooding uh, really uh, hit its high point there in July. And northern cities like Chiang Mai, six to nine feet deep. Uh, what was interesting, though, is by Thanksgiving, the water still had not receded. Uh, the most significant uh, event in that culture is the king's birthday. And being a Buddhist nation, um, they run on a 12-year cycle, uh, you know, kind of like if you've ever been to a Chinese restaurant, you see that, you know, born in the year of the snake, born in the year of the boar, born in the year of the dragon, uh, etc. And so every time you run through that 12-year cycle, that next birthday is a very significant birthday. Uh, likewise, in that culture, the number seven is highly significant. So um, seven times 12, your 84th birthday is your most significant birthday. And they were coming up on the king's 84th birthday. Um, on December 5th. Uh, they had tried everything uh, to get rid of the flooding. Uh, the flooding actually became listed as the fourth most um, uh, expensive natural disaster in world history. Wow. And uh, I'm sorry, fifth most. They were right behind, no, it's fourth, uh, right behind Katrina and the two earthquakes that have taken place in Japan. Hmm. Um, 
95 and in 2011. And so they actually were coming to the point where they were going to have to start canceling celebrations. This was really a, a slam to their national identity. The governor of, of the region of Bangkok, who's one of the most powerful people in Thailand, uh, called Christians, and this had never occurred in the history of Thailand. Uh, evangelists had been in country uh, from Jesuits to uh, Protestants had been in country for about 200 years now sharing the gospel, and they've never really been given a, 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 a vocal audience in the royal palace before. Hmm. But the governor of Bangkok called and invited over 12,000 Christians uh, to come to the palace on the eve of the uh, king's birthday, which they've never been asked to do. Wow. Um, they were called into areas that outsiders, non-Buddhists, are not even permitted to be in, and they were asked to pray for the king. Uh, because Christians were seen as the people who pray to the God who is above all gods. Wow. And they were asked to pray for the waters to recede. They mm. had went from July until now the 1st of December, and the waters had not dropped more than just a couple of inches. Uh, they prayed for the king that night, the 12,000 Christians who went there. Uh, they were very cordially greeted. Uh, they were treated well that while they were there. They were treated well while they were praying. Um, the next morning when they got up, the floodwaters were gone. Wow. Um, and, and to get to speak with some of the evangelists and, and some of the missionaries and Christians who were a part of that event and, and to see the, the joy of being able, one of the, the ladies who's a missionary there has been in country for 14 years, uh, and she shared, you know, for 14 years every day I prayed for an opportunity like this, and, and the tears just um, would, would flow down her face, and she would tremble with joy as she was telling the story. It was just an amazing thing. Uh, the second thing, and more along the lines of where our show is going today, um, it amazed me. Um, I mean, I was I was sitting at tables and and doing mission projects alongside with people from Vietnam and Cambodia, uh, Korea, Australia, Japan, um, others from the United States, from Scotland, from Germany, from Russia, from um, uh, Kenya, and from South Africa, from uh, Brazil and Colombia and Venezuela, from Barbados. And, and I wrote back to my wife one day, and I told her, I said, it amazes me. I have so much more in common with these people who I have every reason to have nothing in common with. Uh, we're from different economies, different education systems, different language groups, different cultural influences. But I have more in common with my brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God than I do with people who grew up, um, you know, uh, tried and true UK fans, which mm. I'm adamantly a UK fan who live across the street from me, who've lived their entire life in the state of Kentucky, and yet don't know Christ as Lord. And I have immeasurably more in common with a guy from Cambodia that I can't even talk to half the time because of language barriers than I do with this guy who lives across the street. Hmm. That's amazing. Those are very uh, eye-opening things. Thanks for sharing that, Matt. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I found that to be very true in my in my just short couple weeks when I was in Kenya. Uh, the same thing, just very much the body of Christ is a beautiful thing when it's lived out well. And uh, it's definitely a family that, that transcends any place we were born in. Uh, so, well, thanks for, thanks for being my guest on the show today. You are the second guest in the history of, uh, of the Voices in My Head with Rick Lee James. Uh, podcast. So thank you so much for being here, Matt. I really appreciate that and your friendship. 
Uh, you're welcome. We uh, we debated my wife and I as to why you had us on the show. We at first thought, well, because we're both uh, Spider-Man advocates. I was arguing because of uh, of the reality that I am such a uh, a deep theological mind. And finally, she came to the conclusions because you wanted somebody with a cool Southern drawl on your show. That was that was mainly the criteria. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, in, uh, in in the danger of ruining something holy that we just had here in a moment with you sharing some wonderful insights, the question for the week that's going to be on this show that uh, that people are going to be able to answer and we'll be talking about on this show, I'm going to give you a chance to, to chime in real quick. You ready? Yeah. yeah. And by the way, Matt is one of the people that in the show's past, listeners, um, gave the answer, the pretty funny thought-out answer of uh, Chewbacca versus Bigfoot. Uh, so Matt, the question for the week that that's going to uh, that we will have had before the week before this podcast airs uh, is, <laughs> and this is kind of funny. We've been talking about you know almost a pacifist type conversation. So I don't know I don't know why I always go to you know who could who could win a, win in a fight with punching each other in the face. But um, anyway. But in a fight, so got the pacifist in it's like a good battle. That's right. It's kind of the only way to maintain, you know, being a pacifist is to, you know, uh, read comics and watch violent movies, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, here's the question of the week: In a fight, who would win between Superman and the mighty Thor? Well, um, you realize partially I'm, I'm biased in this because Superman is a DC comic character, and, and I'm already against Superman just for that reason. <laughs> Um, however, um, given my increased uh, respect for Thor, especially after a very well done movie um, uh, with the recent Thor movie, uh, I'm, I'm still actually going to have to side with Superman on this. Hmm, really? um, uh, one of the reasons why I'm not a DC comic fan is because his character sometimes, in uh, Superman's example of this, he's flawless. Hmm. And um, about the only way that this fight would, would tip in Thor's favor is if it took place inside a DC universe. Uh, because there, you know, it doesn't really matter because there's 75 different multiverses anyway. Uh, but that would be the one place where well, you find kryptonite. And not anymore, though, because Marvel now... Universe, there's not kryptonite, so even even though he is the son of a god um, in, in all of your great mythologies, historically, even the sons of gods can die and... Uh, um, you know, uh, Superman and his, his DC uh, multiverse is just going to keep getting resurrected somewhere. Well, you know that Thor died not long ago in the comics, and yes. this this was actually after um, he was just resurrected just a couple years ago uh, because he had died uh, previously to that. So Thor just keeps dying and coming back, and uh, Superman keeps dying and coming back. So I don't know. I mean, there, there could be some stiff competition there uh, between these these godlike uh, figures, but. Um, you know that that makes me want to do another podcast about myth and uh, you know how comic characters are kind of the modern day myth. But that that's way more than we can go into right now. So, uh, well, yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm going with Superman on this one, unless Thor can come up with kryptonite. I am floored that you said that, knowing your distaste for DC comics. But anyway, well, thanks very much, Matt. I, again, I appreciate it. Give my best to your family and God bless. Blessings, man. Thanks. Uh -huh.
Well, that was my conversation with my second guest ever, Matthew Cole, the pastor of Calvary Church of the Nazarene in Lexington, Kentucky. I do apologize for the dogs barking during the interview, and at one point I got up to shut the door so they wouldn't be so loud, and there's a few places where the volume was uneven. I'm still trying to work out um, Skype and uh, volume levels and things like that, and also uh, just frankly not very good internet connection. Um, so I hope it was uh, something that you benefited from and maybe something that made you think uh, in a different way about some things. Neither of us claim to be completely right, and we want to hear back from you. And uh, our goal is just to be faithful together. Thank you for listening, and uh, we hope you'll continue to tune in to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. I've said enough. God bless. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. You can also download my free mobile app from iTunes and on the Android Marketplace. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.